Amen. Thank you, Molly. Good morning. Rest kids, you're dismissed to go to class. And then after they have cleared the aisles, they usually do it pretty rapidly. Um, ushers, you all are free to come down and receive the morning's tithes and offerings. By way of reminder, if you're like me and don't have either cash or checks at any point in your existence, unless you're outside the country, uh, then you can give online as well. Uh, one brief announcement before we jump into our text. December 8th, so in two weeks, our Constitution stipulates that anytime we have a members meeting, uh, save a, an emergency, we give two weeks notice, and we've given more than that. So uh, December 8th, in two weeks now, is will be a member meeting uh, at 9 a.m., uh, either here in this room or if we can kind of crowd into one of the other rooms uh, to go over the budget for 2020, vote on the budget for 2020, and uh, just as significantly really share some exciting vision that, that I have, I believe the Lord's given our fellowship for 2020 uh, and beyond. So please plan on joining us December 8th for that membership meeting at, at 9 a.m. And if that calls to mind, hey, I'm not a member, uh, come talk to me and we can schedule class, we can work something out for you. Uh, this morning's text is in many ways a window into an ancient world. As we gaze through that window, we see what it looks like when we have a group of people who are part of a larger group of people going and gathering and sharing. We see this group of people who know they're a part of this larger connected group of people, what I call an interdependent body of bodies, seeking to live out the Christian life wherever they may be and seeking to make Christ known wherever they may go. We can look over texts like these, but I've found in my life much richness has come from texts like these, because these are people with names. The Bible is filled with named people, people with stories, hopes, fears, good days, and bad days, and all of these people play a role in the story of God. For context, two of these named people, part of this interdependent body of bodies, Tychicus and Onesimus, they've delivered a handwritten letter from the quill, uh, typing fingers, not really, right, of the Apostle Paul in his jail cell. They've delivered it to Colossae and they'll take it on to Laodicea. And we've spent the last couple of months reading that very same letter. In it, Paul makes much of Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith. He is the point of true religion. We've learned that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the creator of all things, visible and invisible. He is the firstborn from the dead and head of the church. He is the defeater of Satan, the reconciler of all, and the victor over sin and death. And Paul's message to the congregation is simple. Fix your eyes on him. Don't let the empty promises of man-made religion distract you from his glory and grace. Church, hold fast to Christ. In the face of conflict, in the face of confusion, in the face of oppression, hold fast to Christ. Colossians. He is the only way of salvation. It's all about him, knowing him, loving him, and making him known. Having spent many weeks considering the main points of the letter, fixing our eyes on Jesus, thinking about its application to our church as a whole, 
the husbands and wives and parents and, and employees and employers that make up this fellowship, we transition to the final greetings and farewells. On the surface, you may have been thinking there's really not much to work with here. There's not a lot of theological content, but there is. Even here, God's word is fruitful and studying it is profitable in many ways. The pervasive metaphor I've had for this verse and a lot of verses like it at the end of his letters, there's a lot of this in Romans. These verses give us a window. And that metaphor of a window has been pervasive in my study. And as we look through that window, I want to think about three things we see. And those three things will guide our time together. As we look through that window, we see the people, the gathering, and the letter. The people, the gathering, and the letter. I'm fond of titles that are just three nouns strung together, like the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. The people, the gathering, and the letter. Let's jump right in. Let's read the whole text, verses 7 through 18 again. Uh, and then I'll talk about the people we see talk about the gathering actions we see, and I'll talk about the letter that's at the heart of those gatherings. And then after we've looked through the window for a few moments, we'll leave the window and we'll look back inside the house. And we'll ask if what we see in the house looks like what we see out the window. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I sent them to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that's taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes, welcome him. And Jesus, no, not that one, <laughs> who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. That means these are the only Jews working with me. And they have been a great comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a Gentile, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers of Laodicea and the Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, let's just make some basic sense of these names. And as we're doing so, let's be reminded that every single person has a role to play in the story of God. Let's start with the first name, Tychicus. So we see a group of two at the beginning in these first couple of verses, Tychicus and Onesimus. Tychicus and Onesimus. These are the guys that have, have come from Paul. They have some news that is not shared in the letter. I don't know if it's sensitive or what, anything like that would be speculation. But nonetheless, Paul's prompting the, the church to ask Tychicus about what's going on, that they have much news to share about what they had all been going through, what Paul's dealing with, what the church's dealing with in Rome and, and other places. They will tell you about my activities in verses 7 and 9. They will tell you of everything that's taken place here. Now, Tychicus is a name you may not be familiar with, but he's become a trusted representative of Paul. Tychicus had been sent to Jerusalem with Paul, I believe. 
he'd gone to Ephesus without him, to Colossae, and most scholars believe that he went to Crete as well. So he had done some substantial travel on behalf of the apostle. This is an important point. Tychicus was not Paul, but there's no Paul without Tychicus. Right? If you have any sort of familiarity with the Bible, you've heard of the Apostle Paul, written much of the New Testament, most famous church planter in the history, greatest theologian who's ever lived because he himself was inspired by God to, to see things that none of us can see until we look at what he's written to us and have those mysteries open to even us as well. I just sometimes wonder what would have happened if Tychicus had been overtaken by an unsettledness and ambition. Like, I wonder what would happen if Tychicus were looking for his big break, where he could make his own name for himself, instead of being in Paul's shadow for the rest of his life. Tychicus here is pictured as an encourager. He's pictured as one that Paul sends because he's trusted. He's pictured as one who Paul knows is going to accurately and adequately complete the mission that he's given to him. He's pictured as one who's going to go to the church, and he's not going to get caught up in whatever situation might be going on there. He's pictured as one who's going to come and provide leadership and comfort and grace and, and the sorts of things the apostle would do if he were there. The church needs great leaders like the Apostle Paul, but they need great leaders who are great leaders by being great followers like Tychicus. That it doesn't matter what Paul saw, what Paul wrote, if that letter never leaves the jail cell. We have a tendency in the U.S. especially to, to, to really elevate the, the Pauline giftings and diminish the Tychicus giftings, but they're both named in Scripture, and there is a place for all in the kingdom of God. Don't stare at the smallness of your role. Stare at the bigger picture it's a part of. Don't stare at the smallness, and I put that in quotes because we're all pretty small if you think about it. Don't stare at the smallness of your role because it's so relative anyways, stare at the greatness of the picture your role is a part of. So we've met Tychicus briefly. Let's meet Onesimus very briefly. Onesimus is a runaway slave from Colossae. And guess where he's going back to? Back to Colossae. To make a long story short, he meets Paul and believes the gospel. And then he's coming home to Colossae with this apostolic emissary, with a new friend and a new identity. Listen to what Paul says about him. And with him comes Onesimus, our faithful and beloved what? Brother. If we were in the world in which this was written, the world outside the household of faith, would expect it to read, and with him Onesimus, that no good, dirty, rotten, runaway slave, piece of property. Because a slave is more akin to property than brotherhood, but he's coming back to Colossae with a new friend, Tychicus. They have plenty of time to go on a trip and get to know each other. A new calling and even more significantly, a new identity. Paul doesn't say, give him his due. He says, welcome him back. Because he's a faithful and beloved brother. So here at the very beginning of the letter, when we look at these two names, we see Tychicus, a great follower, and we see Onesimus, a runaway slave. 
You see a confidant of the apostle and runaway slave together in the ministry. Then we find greetings from six of Paul's friends, three of Jewish birth and three of Gentile birth, and those names start in verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Justice, we'll call him just to avoid confusion. These are the only men of the circumcision. So those three men are of Jewish background. And then Paul says there are these other men who send you greetings as well, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. Now, we're not going to look at all of these names, Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas, but I want to get a picture of what's going on in those names, just so we can see through that window and know who we're looking at a little more clearly. Mark, yes, the Mark who wrote the book of your Bible, if you flip back several pages. At this stage of his life, he's not super well known. He had actually gone with Mark on that first missionary journey, but for whatever reason, he quit. And he came back home to Jerusalem. And that decision to quit right when they were getting started, I mean, imagine that, the, the first team ever going out to church plant, right? And the team just splits in two right when it gets started. That split would cause a fissure in his relationship with Paul that would last several years. Eventually, though, they would be reconciled. And now Paul is telling the church to welcome him when and if he comes to town. Epaphras was a Colossian. I don't know if you remember back at the very beginning of the sermon series we met Epaphras. Epaphras was the one who planted, who began, founded, if you will, the fellowship, the church there in Colossae. He had gone to Ephesus where he heard the Apostle Paul preach the gospel and he has come back to Colossae and served as sort of the, the leader, the catalyst for the planting of the fellowship there in that city. He may be gone, but he's not forgotten the Colossians. And Paul elaborates that on that in verses 12 and 13. Look, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea, and those in Hierapolis. Paul is sending greetings from Epaphras, one of their own, who's gone on to another stage of his ministry, but he has not forgotten the Colossians. He is still a part of their team. We have a picture of an interdependent body of bodies. He's struggling on their behalf in prayer. It's the sort of prayer we talked about last week that is steadfast and, and watchful and missional. He's praying on their behalf. He's not there in body, but he's still there in spirit. He understands himself to be a crucial part of what God is doing in Colossae. Oh, and Luke the physician, right? Author of Luke and Acts. Brilliant man. He also sends his greetings. So just briefly, we've seen Mark, Epaphras, uh, and Luke the physician who wrote Luke and Acts. They all see themselves as part of this larger movement we now know as Christianity that may have been known as the way at that moment in time. So just a brief recap. We have Christians from Jewish backgrounds. We have Christians from Gentile backgrounds, which there in itself is a miracle. We have a Colossian church planter. We have Mark who had a falling out with Paul. And we have a runaway slave. Oh, and we have a Gentile doctor, just to make the team even more odd. And these are our spiritual fathers. 
These are the men that the world did not choose, but God chose to be part of this gospel movement. Church, everyone has a part to play. Luke, the physician, Epaphras, the church planner, Paul, the theologian. And as we look through that window and as we see the weirdness of that group, I want us to look in the house for just a moment and see the weirdness of this group. No offense. But I, I just believe the testimony of the church would be so much stronger if it can't be explained away by similar socioeconomic backgrounds. I believe the testimony of the church would be so much stronger if we didn't have all people in the same room who vote for the same person every single election. I believe the testimony of the gospel would be so much stronger if we had superficially incompatible people who came together in this space and actually loved each other, served each other, and worshiped Christ together. That our weirdness might make it difficult to get along and grow at first, but our weirdness shows us about the gospel and the God who calls us into a family. So our weirdness is something we must understand, we must embrace, we must see the dynamics, we must learn to overcome those dynamics. In some ways, we must learn to build bridges in this place. But we must not disregard a brother or sister because they don't think like we do. They don't see the world. They have a different set of experiences. They spend their money differently. They're from a different place, right? My point is just to embrace our weirdness. And may we get compoundingly and more weird as we grow. And the second thing I want us to see is as we look out there and as we look in here, we, there's an embracing of our roles, if they seem big or if they seem small, that your task in the household of God is no small task. That the calling of a servant in the house of God is greater than a king in the palace of man. Focus not on the smallness of this task you feel that you have, but focus on the bigger picture it's a part of. Oh, and as we transition to the gathering and the letter, I would argue that these are not just our spiritual fathers we're meeting. We're also meeting our spiritual mothers. We introduce a female name. Meet Nympha. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. So, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, so in the other town nearby, and give my greetings to Nympha, and the what, where, and the church in her house, and the church in her house. So we know from Scripture there is a church, there's a, a gathering of people that are gathering regularly in, in Nympha's home. Now, one of the things I love about this window is it's somewhat of a corrective. And when we look into this window, we see how the church is gathering and living in the everyday stuff. Like, what does it look like, right? We know they don't come to a big auditorium and, and hear someone talk for 35 minutes and sing the same song. We know it's not that. So what might it look like, right? Well, we know in other books of the Bible, in Philippi, there's a church that meets in Lydia's home. In Centraea, there's a church that meets in Phoebe's home. And in a place like Jerusalem, where there's a whole, there's a whole lot of Christians... 
because that's where like the church started. There are all these people who are sort of ready and they heard the gospel from the apostles. They believed the gospel. And so there's all these Christians that can't really fit and went home. What we believe was going on there is that they considered themselves part of, of the church. But they gathered in sort of smaller circles of fellowship. And we know that Mark's mom hosted Mary, one of those fellowships. So we see pictures of churches gathering in people's homes, and it's not strange, it's not odd, it's not outside the norm. In fact, you could make a case that it's very common that these churches would gather in homes owned by women. Now, I don't have a cultural point to make, but I have a theological point to make. Women clearly played major roles in church planting during the apostolic age, and those who supposedly take the Bible seriously would be wise to heed that example. But here's the larger point. When our only category for meaningful ministry is pastor of church, we are missing some of the most gifted kingdom citizens. Notably among those, all women. Unleashing the potential of the church in our day requires biblical fidelity and it requires biblical missiology in activating the gifts that God has given to all of God's people. The gifts of hospitality and service and love should not be untethered from the growth of the fellowship. That being a pastor elder, which scripture teaches is for men, is one but not the only way that we can serve God. I believe our churches are filled with people who believe their pastor serves God in meaningful ways and all they do is stand here and clap for him. We have got to begin to understand that each of us and all of us, if the church is going to be the sort of movement that we see in the Bible, recapture biblical missiology where we understand ourselves to be a part of something greater and we understand that Christ has ascended and scriptures teach in Ephesians that he has given gifts to the church and our job as pastors and elders is to activate those gifts in the church. That as God's people gather in home homes in Centrea, in homes in Jerusalem, in homes in Philippi, owned by men, owned by women, different people hosting these things, that we're all coming to these gatherings saying, God has given me these gifts, how can I use them to build his kingdom? Unleashing the potential of the church in our day requires a biblical fidelity, a biblical understanding of the mission of God, and the, the steadfast desire to equip people with the gifts God's given them. If this room is just full of people hearing me preach and none of you understand how God's gifted you, then this has been a massive failure. Now, if we were to look into one of those gatherings and see something, we would probably see one of the elders, one of the men standing in the middle of the room reading this letter, perhaps this one, from the Apostle Paul. Because they understood that what Paul's giving them isn't just suggestions about how the church should live. What Paul's giving them isn't just some advice, some take it or leave it. Hey, I know you guys are in, you know, this town and this town and this town. No, Paul is coming with the authority of God. And his words are God's words breathed through him for the building of the church and the reaching of the lost. Explaining this letter is the embryonic form of what's happening right now. Preaching. 
that one day a real letter was delivered by Tychicus Onesimus, and it came into this house, and they said, come on in, and they handed it to this man who was trusted and faithful, and they trusted to lead the congregation, and they said, here are the words of the apostles, and he read the words of the apostles, and he explained it to them. Oh, I wasn't doing that in my home. I need to be doing that. Oh, I didn't think that way. Oh, I'm not loving my, I I need to be doing that. And they're listening to the word of God. It's leading them to exalt Jesus and it's leading them to change their life. And then throughout the story of the church, that story, the reading of the letter by the people of God for the people of God, has been playing out again over and over and over and over. And the living words that came to the apostle come this morning to you. In Charleston, West Virginia, 2,000 years later, because these words cannot fail. These words are not normal words. These words are not the meditations of a sage, the murmurings of a guru. These words are God's words. The church, as we look through the window, would gather, the scroll would be unrolled, and the word would be read, and that word has changed the course of human history. The local church gathers around the word of God, the living, breathing, and powerful word of God. And this gathering, this gathering of the local church in houses and theaters and church buildings and all over the world, even in tombs, catacombs, where the early church would have also gathered, this gathering church is the locus of the gospel movement. When we look through the window, we see people We see people gathering, and we see them gathering around the word. We've looked and we've seen this morning a bunch of people that don't make sense together, right? We've seen these people working together in their own places, in their own ways, yet somehow cohesively for the spread of the gospel. We've seen the people of God working, unleashing their gifts together, gathering in homes, bringing all they've got to the table. We've seen the word of God in the center of their gatherings, teaching them how to live in the everyday stuff of life. So now we leave the window and we look inside this house. And my question is, do we see similar dynamics? By God's grace, in some ways, yes. In other ways, Not so much. We must be, church, a diverse group of people, a diverse gospel people, with our own roles to play, both in this body and in the body of Christ, largely. Here, right now, on this Sunday morning in, what, late November, right? Got a lot going on. I think it's late November. Here as we gather this Sunday morning, we are the gathered people of God. We are part of that same movement of all the names that we've read. Just like Tychicus and Onesimus and Aristarchus and Mark and Justice and Epaphras and Luke and Demas and Nymphae and Archippus and Paul, who says, church, remember my chains because they're your chains. Grace be with you. And here as we gather, we remember our brothers and sisters in chains. 
around the world, knowing we are part of one body. Here we gather, and in this space, we have our own roles to play. And if, Nate, you want to come on up to the keys as we wind to a close. Here we gather to worship God weekly. We gather to build each other up. We gather to deepen relationships. We gather to make new friends. We gather to make sense of life. We gather to learn. We gather to laugh. We gather to cry on a normal, casual, perhaps even, shall we say, could be even boring. Sunday morning, we preach. We hold babies, usually not at the same time. We play drums, we run soundboards, we teach, we make coffee, we greet, we listen, we love. This gathering is not the point of the Christian life, but it is the locus of the lived experience of Christianity. It is the locus of the lived experience of Christianity. The sins of one generation may have been equating spiritual righteousness to attendance. Right, You know, your grandparents, or if you are a grandparent, your, your generation, you know, may have been the one that's, if the church doors are open, we are there. <laughs> Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, men's prayer breakfast Saturday morning, uh, whatever it might be, you know, and you got people going to church every day of the week. And spiritual maturity was almost seen as like, are you in there if the doors are open? And I think in many ways there was sort of a kickback to that. Uh, and, and some of that was a good kickback. But if the sins of one generation were idolizing the gathering, then the sins of this generation are forsaking the gathering. <laughs> if the sins of one generation is equating maturity with showing up, then I would make the case that the sins of this generation are like showing up when we want to. And just justifying it by saying, oh, it's not just about showing up. Well, yeah, it's not just about showing up, but how are you going to do what it is just about if you never show up? And I think that this is a helpful moment to remind us of this, the urgency to gather. I read a great reminder this week. Like, we churches, we're not fighting against other churches for your attendance. People think that's the case. Right, that like this church and this church are fighting for, and that, that is happening because what is going on is that, is that there's more. Christianity is growing. It's not. We're not dying. That's that's not true. But what is dying is that mushy middle group of people who just go to church for you know, because they can or want to. That sort of cultural stuff that probably wasn't ever Christian in the first place. That's kind of disappearing, and you're either going to be a, a Christian or not. Right. And so what a lot of churches are doing is we, we have this tendency to, like, fight each other over these people who are, are religious. And, and forgetting about the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are so far from God. And we're not just trying to get you to come here instead of there. Right? We're not just trying to shuffle parking lots. We're not fighting other churches for your attendance. We're fighting bedside Baptist church. Bedside Baptist Church is, of course, your pillow. It's sleeping. We're fighting apathy. We're fighting work. We're fighting sports. We're fighting vacations. I've learned past, I used to, when we first started, I was like, man, we can count on summer being low, 
because at the time we were like mostly college students, and it's like college students are out, and uh, people go on vacations. But then the more I've learned, grown as a pastor, I've realized people have summer vacations, they have fall vacations, they have winter vacations, and they have spring vacations. I'm not preaching at anyone specifically here, just so we know we're clear. When you factor in a spring vacation, a summer vacation, a winter vacation, a fall vacation, you've already got a, you know, a day off, a couple days, couple days off in each quarter before you even get sick, before you even get tired, before you even have sports, before you even have work, before you even have these things. And, and what you're beginning to see is we've eliminated the gatherings from like four to one. And then what's happening is we're missing that one a lot throughout the course of a year. Why does it matter? I would argue that we must gather because we must be formed. Week in and week out by the word of God and by the living spirit of God. Because when we go out there, we're being formed every second. We're being formed every minute. We're being formed every hour into consumers into people who are obsessed with ourselves and our success and our education and our lives and our kingdom. And it's not until hopefully we come in here when we gather with our families and say what they say life's all about. It's not all about all that stuff. It's about knowing Christ and making him known. And that's the whole point of Colossians, which would be that letter that would be being read by those elders in that faithful sister's home. We must gather because we must be formed. Because when we go out there, we're being formed. And we need our hearts to hear a better story. The story of Jesus making all things new. We must align our hearts with that story as true north. Will we commit to being the weird people of God, embracing our spots if they're small or not. You guys think, and this is, this is just church-related, it's not all about resurrection, but here's some examples of how this plays out in resurrection. You guys think probably that, like, people come to hear me. That's just not true. It's not true. Someone will come and they'll visit, and they won't come back if no one talks to them. They won't come back if the workers in the nursery treat them as a second-class person. They won't come back if their kids say, you know what, those res kids teachers, they don't really care about me. They're just kind of there because no one else will do it. So what we really see, even on a micro level, just this gathering, just this fellowship, is growth we have of people who are coming in and say, oh, we want to be a part of something. That if, if those little jobs aren't happening, I could be the greatest preacher in the world and it's not going to matter. That's a micro, small example. That those small jobs make massive differences. So imagine a situation. I, I just, this, is just, this hasn't happened yet, but it might. Imagine a situation where, where a, a nursery worker takes their job very seriously, and they love a baby of a family. And this family comes in, and they hear the gospel plainly, and they get called. They're, they're hearing it. They're processing it. They're thinking about how to obey it. And they say, you know what? I need to, I, God's calling us to cross cultures. 
God's calling us to go somewhere. God's calling us to be a part of a missionary team in South Asia. So imagine like the role of that nursery worker that no one else had ever heard of, but like them serving well where they are in that situation is a catalyst for the message of God going to the peoples of the world. And we could make tons of those examples. We are the weird people of God gathered embracing our own unique distinct roles somehow cohesively with the word at the center of our lives with the word at the center of our families that you gather around or read nightly with the word gathered around the center of this family which we gather around weekly and in smaller groups in other places the people of God on mission with God is what this book was written for. That we may know him, that we may worship him, that we may love him, and we may serve him. This morning as we gather, we come to Jesus through the blood of the cross. We sit under the authority of God's word and we gather. There are thousands of places you could have been this morning, but you are here. And we gather around the table as a family. I'm going to pray for us. I invite you to spend a few minutes in reflection and then we'll observe the Lord's Supper together. Father, your word is good. Texts like these remind us of the millions of people who are part of this family. Texts like these remind us that we're not just reading the murmurings of a philosopher that we're reading your word that was intended for your people to know how to live in the everyday stuff of life, that we may discern the role that we're playing in your mission. Help us, God, embrace that. Help us embrace at every level the role that we play in your fellowship. Help us commit ourselves to the gospel going forth here and among the nations, God. Give us a steadfast commitment to your word. Help what we see inside the house be like what we saw outside the window this morning. We're superficially incompatible people are working together for the glory of God, the building of the church, and the joy of the lost. In Christ's name we pray.